three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of the Lab News Podcast. Thank you for being here. In this episode, I am talking to the brilliant Dr. Sarah Pitt. Now, she's a virologist from the University of Brighton, but she's also Chief Examiner of Virology for the Institute of Biomedical Science. So, as you can imagine, when I've got the ear of a virologist at the moment, we're only really going to be talking about one thing. We're going to be discussing all things coronavirus. Now, Sarah and I talked about an awful lot in this interview. There is simply so much to cover, but... Of course, the media is awash with COVID-19 and coronavirus information at the moment. So I was keen to tread a careful path to make it worthwhile for you to listen to. But before we get to that, it's time to have a chat with the brilliant new editor of Laboratory News magazine, Sarah Lawton. By the time people are listening to this, uh, the um, next issue of Lab News will be imminently dropping through onto their doormat. So, um, so what, what have we got in store? Right. Well, having taken over from you, obviously big shoes to fill, but um, we, ha- we have all the lovely usuals such as focal point and we have the news and science all sorts. Um, we have our normal contributors. So we've got the laboratory uh, researchers guide to lockdown. Russ one has his usual lab babble column and this one is quite interesting because he calls bogus on many of the quite creepy opportunistic claims that have been going on through lockdown so I was very pleased to to uh, publish that. Because this is a, a bumper issue I, I've been able to double up on a fair number of, of the usual things so we've got I've got a question and answer article that has two contributors, um, one one from Agilent and the other from the Green Lab. They're talking about innovation and sustainability. And then I have another one which takes two viewpoints, one from the viewpoint of a biotech vaccine developer. They have a really exciting new COVID-19 vaccine, which is delivered via capsule. So it's very unique and very scalable. So we hear from both the developer and their investor, which uh, I, I think is quite an interesting perspective. And then as far as really good, chunky, in, in-depth stories go, we've got um, the cover story, which is about uh, the world of life discovered on the back of loggerhead turtles, which is fun. Uh, and I got really excited about that being a Terry Pratchett fan. So I got heavily into connecting all the all the dots with Terry Pratchett quotes. So... The readers are going to have to forgive me on that one. <laughs> um, and we've got some nice visual pieces. We have um, a really good kind of image double page spread that looks at how motion capture is being applied in healthcare research. And we have a, an infographic that looks at the coronavirus impact on UK lab-based startups and scale-ups. Uh, and things, it turns out, from that don't look as bad for laboratories as, as generally across the board it, it could be seen for the rest of the UK economy. So there's some positive outlook. Good. So far, so incredibly interesting. But as always, Lab News isn't just focused on the high-end research and development. It's also interested in helping scientists perform better in the lab. True to say there, we're never fully satisfied until we've been both fascinating and incredibly useful. 
Yeah, so along with UXPA and um, KimTech, which is the science arm of Kimberly Clark Professional, we've actually put together a mini guide, back to business mini guide, which fulfills the, the UK government requirement of presenting the, the new back to work guidelines in a, in a clear and informative manner. So the aim is that we're, we're offering this free online for employers and um, lab managers to download and print or send by email on, or present online to their employees. Because getting back to business, managers have so much else to deal with at the moment that we wanted to just help out and give them, give them a, bit of, a, a bit of a leg up on this. And we thought this might be one way of doing it. So if, if users want to download it, they can go onto our main Lab News webpage, labnews.co.uk, and a banner ad should pop up along the bottom um, which they can click uh, and fill out some fairly basic information which is just for our benefit to see who's using the guide it, it's not going to be used for anything else it's certainly not going to be given to any third party um, and then uh, follow the instructions and it will be sent to them Okay, sounds like brilliant stuff. Thanks for that, Sarah. So for those that know Lab News, then that should have whetted your appetite. For those that don't yet know the magazine, please do subscribe. It's absolutely brilliant. And I am, of course, in no way biased about that. Okay, then time to meet Dr. Sarah Pitt and get into all things coronavirus. We do get into all aspects of the country's response to this disease, the testing, the vaccine development, the reagent shortages and the politics that oftentimes has been less than helpful. I thought, what better place to start than the virus itself? I began by asking her if a virus was even something that we could consider as alive. Well, you see, I mean, I know it's... it's debatable but don't tell me that something that can cause the amount of devastation that this virus has caused isn't alive i know there's i know you're going to say it doesn't have a brain and it doesn't meet all the criteria that we were learned in o-level biology for life but i would say it is i mean i know it's an intracellular parasite and it it parasitizes your cell mechanisms to do the replication but it does bring some of its own enzymes to the party and it does have this thing of replicating its own genome and producing progeny and you can't control what a virus does inside you once a virus gets inside your cell the cell can't do anything about it you know i, I think so and of course, coronaviruses have become perhaps one of the world's most infamous pathogens over the last six months or so. But how much do we really know about them? For some things, that dusty old textbook in the corner just can't be beaten. Because I'm just a diagnostic virologist, really, I'm a generalist. So when this one came up, I just went back to my old textbooks and looked up things like everyone was saying it's called coronavirus because it looks like a crown. And, if you, and it doesn't really. And actually, it's not named for the crown. It's named for the corona of the sun. And I knew that because I learned that when I was training as a virologist years and years and years, very too many years ago that I'm not going to tell you how many years ago now. It was a really long time ago. And I found that in my old textbook. I was reading up about what they knew about, which would have been just common cold coronaviruses. It's very old. It's before SARS. And they said, yes, well, we assume that people make an immune response to coronavirus, but no one's ever found one. And 
that was obviously old-fashioned 1980s sort of 70s 80s sort of techniques that they used but they found antibodies to influenza parainfluenza any other sort of measles mumps rubella or all the other viruses you might have heard of using those old-fashioned techniques but using all the techniques that we use to find the antibodies against every other virus we know they didn't find them against coronavirus which tells you something about the immune response and that is an unbelievably important point isn't it it has ramifications for every aspect of our response to this virus. It can affect the vaccine, it can affect our testing of who's had the virus, and of course it can affect whether we're immune once we've had it. So yeah, so what we know is that so you, the, there are four known common cold coronaviruses, two of them which we've known about for a really long time, that those were known about in my very old textbook, and then another two that have popped up. Uh, in the 80s and 90s with associated with quite small small outbreaks so what we what we know is that you make the immune response that you make may or may not protect you from future infection with SARS-1 they did follow people up over a period of time and found that uh, a significant proportion of people weren't making any detectable immune response at all and another significant proportion of the ones that did lost it within 12 months. So they when they followed them up, they, they didn't have any antibody anymore. And what we know from the antibody surveys from this new virus, this new SARS that people have done kind of around the world, between 9 and 20% of people don't make antibodies that you can detect at all. And then obviously we don't, we just basing on what we know about coronaviruses in general, the chances are that of the remaining 80%, at least some of them, are going to lose their immune response and we don't really know whether that even whether that's protective against future infection whether that's just it it will be a marker of the fact that you've had it but will it stop you from getting it again who knows my from you know just from thinking about it and from reading about it my feeling is that i'm picking up is that t-cell response is actually more perhaps is very important more important than we're giving it credit for which obviously in an antibody screening test you're not going to pick up t t cell response but nevertheless you know we we still know that people don't aren't necessarily going to be immune to future um infections even with this one and i mean there have been anecdotal reports of people getting reinfected but then they're they're small numbers there might have been a problem with the test and they're, they're all it's very small numbers so we don't know for sure so a complex immune response is, of course, going to make it more difficult to develop a vaccine and an antibody test. More on that later. But for diagnostic purposes, of course, the mainstay of our testing so far has been PCR-based, where we pick up on the genetic material of the virus itself. Developing a testing capability like this on a national level has, of course, come with challenges. The government decided that rather than support the NHS labs to kind of increase their capacity. What they were going to do was set up these private labs in the middle of nowhere. So there was one in Milton Keynes, one at Alderley Edge in Cheshire, and one near Glasgow Airport. I gather, I think there's another one in Scotland now. And they never, they don't appear to have ever wanted for anything. So they had all their reagents and supplies that they, they all needed. But what they didn't have were registered qualified biomedical scientists to actually do the tests and so because i'm in a couple of microbiology societies 
and we were getting emails saying can you do PCR please volunteer to come to our Milton Keynes lab and so it took them a little while I think to staff it but the main thing is they are just because you can do a PCR there's a little bit more to it than hand to the, to it than that for handling a patient sample booking it in and then processing it and then sending the right result to the right person there is a bit more to it than being a top you know it doesn't really matter how great you are at PCR there's there's more to it than that which they, they haven't really uh, thought of and the other thing which flummoxes me is this testing that they keep talking about where you go to a car park and somebody sticks a throat swab sticks a swab through your car window um you actually have to get the gag reflex for a proper throat swab which is why you shouldn't really be doing it yourself because it's too uncomfortable to do it on your own on to to yourself you know it's always better to get someone else to do it because they're going to do it properly so i'm not really sure that whether sticking a thing through someone's car window is always going to get the gag reflex i mean i'm sure the people have been trained and they know what they're doing and so on and so forth but you know still okay so logistics notwithstanding surely the pcr tests themselves were robust i mean this is now an old well-known technology the really great thing that happened was that the when the Chinese published the sequence of the virus sort of to the end of last year. The top um, scientists in public health from through the European Centre for Disease Surveillance and Control, they all got together and they developed the, the polymerase chain reaction test for the virus um, genome. And they, they got that test up and running within less than a month. The test kit and the protocol and everything so that was originally in sort of january february that's what the test that we were using was that one was the the phe one and it was only being done in public health labs which are there are only a few of them uh, around the country and i have a colleague who works at the phe in cambridge and i was talking to her and she said well the they wanted to roll out commercial kits to the nhs labs just for kind of quality controls because the in-house test does need extra expertise over and above your normal diagnostic virologies and which is already a level of you know it's already an expert job and PCR is already an expert that not all biomedical scientists can do PCR and so on but because this is an in-house kit there's an extra level of quality checks and expertise which was needed so they were going to wait until some com commercial kits came along so it didn't it didn't take too long for kits to turn up um, all the kits that you can buy are all using different primers for different bits of the virus genome which is really fun I suppose it's because of intellectual property rights from the different kit manufacturers but the other problem is no I don't think anyone has compared which the sensitivity and specificity of the different kits so you might find that you're getting different rates of positivity in different places might might not be a geographical quirk it might be it's just a different kit that they've used so they might one of them might be better at picking up positives than others we, one of them i saw that they used early on was had a two two sets of primers one was for general coronaviruses any old coronavirus and so in march and april common colds are still about so there might well have been, they might well have been picking up some non-COVID coronaviruses. So I know that they are finding 
different rates of positivity sort of in different pockets but that could be because we've got different tests okay so so far so tricky it's clearly been a very difficult path for the diagnostics response we've had in the country to get up to speed but has this affected the perception of the biomedical community so a couple of weeks ago there was uh, some politician saying well of course you know the thing is that you know there are going to be teething problems because it's only just been set up from scratch it's like well, but it didn't need to be you didn't need to just start you didn't need to just start from scratch with this. If we, you, all you need to do is bolster what we already had. It's, it's really, it's very, very, very frustrating. My colleagues in the NHS, everyone's looking at that and going, oh, you know, first of all, we'd never heard of you. Now we've decided that we, you know, you're not doing a very good job. And it's just really, really frustrating. So perhaps predictably here, there's been a real misrepresentation by the media of the scientists in the diagnostics labs. Even these car park places where they say the testing centres. And now I was thinking, well, surely the testing centre is in Milton Keynes. And then on the news, you say, here's a picture of a testing centre. That's a car park where they're collecting samples. Nobody's doing any actual testing there. So the terminology is confusing. And that I think that doesn't help because then people go, well, what? they've taken my test. Why is the result not ready? Because they don't really understand the bit, you know, the bit in between. These things just take longer because because of the nature of the test. Even, you know, GPs don't always understand that part of it because they just think that they do, I think they don't realise that there's actually any people in the lab. I think they just think it's this sort of futuristic machine thing, black box sort of thing where the samples go in and then the results come out and they never, ever think about what might be happening in the mean, in the middle. And the fact that the people who are running it are master's level qualified scientists also people don't really think about that either the IMS were really good they did a really the publicity department did this really lovely animated film of what happens to the sample and you know how the fact that it has to goes to the lab and then it's clipped in and then they do pcr on it and a little bit about how pcr works and how long the assay actually takes to explain to people why you don't get the result in two seconds or three minutes you know it takes the, the some of the PCR protocols are even now are still taking like six hours because you've got to do extraction and then you've got to go reverse transcriptase PCR. You can't just do that, you know, quickly. So um, explaining some of that to people is hard. These videos that Sarah mentioned do do a really good job. So you should go and check them out. Uh, if you visit ibms.org forward slash do you know what happens to your sample, you can check them out there. So as we begin to emerge from the first lockdown, at least here in the UK, there are going to be two factors that are really important going forward. That is, of course, vaccine development and the track and trace system. And like pretty much every other aspect of the country's response to this pandemic, there has been some controversy around the government's approach to this track and trace system. I don't really understand why they've set up a whole new system. We have perfectly good very well functioning public health and environmental health systems, which if there's an outbreak of meningitis in a school, the infection control, public health, environmental health go and sort it out. They find, they do track and trace. They find the people who might've been in contact with this little kid that had meningitis. They go and talk to all the people they might've been in contact with and identify them and give them the appropriate advice and treatment. We know how to do this. Again, people do this. 
all day every day no one gives it a second thought no one cares no one notices no one comes into contact with them unless it, it's you're in, involved in one of these outbreaks but all they need to do really was upscale that hmm so you have to wonder why on earth didn't we just do that i have no idea it really flummoxes me it seems really really daft so um they're talking you know the track and trace system I don't know why you don't really need an app. I think they've decided to have an app because Korea have got an app. Clearly getting a classic epidemiological intervention like track and trace right is going to be important. But the truth is the panacea to this pandemic we're all waiting for is a vaccine. So how likely is this and how long will we have to wait? They've tried to make a vaccine against SARS-1. And given that the funding kind of dried up because SARS-1 went away and everyone said, well, why are we wasting our time and our money on this? Because the, the virus doesn't even exist anymore. Let's just stop. So they tried to make one against MERS, which is obviously another relative. So the, the, to start off with, it's not looking good because they haven't been able to make one against SARS-1 or MERS. So... Uh, and after and for MERS they've had since 2012 and they have not got very far with it. Now I can see that some of it will be because of funding. MERS is a really big deal in Saudi Arabia, but it's kind of reasonably contained. There've been outbreaks in other places. There was a big outbreak in Korea actually a couple of years ago, but mostly it's in the Middle East. And so probably getting funding to develop a vaccine is something that's only found in one small region of the air of the world and that's not you know western europe or america is probably tricky i can see that but the truth is funding clearly hasn't been an issue for the covid19 pandemic no the problems that the vaccine developers face are much more rooted in biology we don't really understand the immune response to um the virus what what's the protective immune response um, what's the role of antibodies, what's the role of T-cells, that's not really very well understood and it, you can't extrapolate from what we know about other viruses. A lot of people, I think, just thought it's a bit like the measles. You, make an, you can make an antibody and then you'll be protected for life and therefore we've got a measles vaccine, why can't we have a vaccine against this? The one they're making at Oxford is that periodically in the news that's going to um, trials in people now, I think. People at Imperial... There's ones going into safety testing next week. So they have actually made a vaccine. But what we don't know is, is that going to elicit protective antibody or protective immune response into people? Because we don't know really know what a protective immune response even is for coronaviruses. So that's one issue. But assuming that the people at Oxford and Imperial, they've sorted that out, 18 months is is really super ambitious. People's expectations have been raised un unfairly, I think, because then what's going to happen is then they're going, oh, those useless scientists, why didn't they say they'd make us a vaccine? The, the Prime Minister promises a vaccine, Donald Trump promises a vaccine, WHO promises a vaccine, and there isn't a vaccine. They're all useless. Why haven't they given us a vaccine? Of course, none of this takes away from the incredible effort of the scientists working on the vaccine currently, and we wait with bated breath for the fruit of their labours. In the meantime, given how quickly this virus has spread across the entire globe, should we now consider COVID-19 to be endemic in the human population? So it could mutate to be slightly less virulent. 
and join all the other the common con coronaviruses in this the sort of suite of normal winter respiratory viruses could do i'm not saying it will but that's a possibility from a virus's point of view that will make a lot more sense i mean the case fatality rate here it's looking very high every time i calculated it's 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 frightening it's like if you say the number of deaths divided by the number of cases that we you know positive tests that we've had um it's about 15 percent case fatality rate but i don't think that's a true picture because we're not necessarily testing everybody yeah we could clearly do with some more data to understand fully the case fatality rate and i think now globally it stands at around nine percent but what does this mean in terms of the virus itself that's still pretty high and it's a bit unsustainable for the virus and so it could be it could be endemic in which case it would be quite quite a dangerous thing for some time to come but i i'm not sure that that's really you know i'm not sure that because we're scared of it we're doing things to stop it transmitting from from person to person and eventually if the R0 goes below one and stays below one, then that means it won't be transmitted from person to person and eventually it will sort of die out. So if it has become endemic, then there is a chance that we have evolution on our side here. It's not in a virus's interest, as it were, for a host to perish before it's spread. So does this mean then that viral zoonotic diseases that have suddenly cropped up in a new species trend towards less virulent? Yeah, they either kill out their whole population or they become less virulent. I tend to anthropomorphise and I get into trouble, but if you think about it from the virus's point of view, that is the way to go. The virus gets into human beings thinking, oh my goodness, what am I doing here? This isn't my normal host, I don't like this. And then the human's going, what's this virus? I've not seen this virus before, I don't like this. And they have to kind of accommodate each other and find a way of living together. It's, like, it's got to come to a point where either it becomes endemic and to be endemic it will have to be less virulent or it'll or we'll get rid of it. So of course we're talking evolution here, ordinarily measured in time scales of millennia, but these are viruses and they can evolve much quicker than that. So have we seen examples of this before? I suppose they are probably the best model is flu, probably influenza A. So something like the swine flu, the 2009-10 swine flu, that's just now a normal winter flu. You know, they will track and sequence the a selection of the viruses which are in circulation to find out what's in circulation. And 2009 influenza A, 2009 H1N1 or something, it's just a normal influenza virus now. So I wonder, would it be complete folly to try and put a timescale on this? Clearly, the great influenza pandemics of the recent past have become now part of the normal circulation of viruses. So how long did that take? What, 10 years? But it probably didn't take 10 years. It probably took about five years to kind of settle down. Whereas if you think when it first came out, it was killing pregnant people. A lot of people were getting very ill. And then it just settled down really quite quickly. But I mean, obviously, influenzas in general... They, they probably do that all the time because they flus a um, negative sense RNA virus and they do evolve and mutate quite quickly. And then the less virulent one becomes more sustainable and then that wins the ecological niche from the more virulent one. So this, this could happen, I think, with, with SARS, is that a, a slightly less um, virulent mutant could pop up which could actually compete with the one that we've got at the moment for the space 
Okay, so I think that's comforting then, isn't it? The idea that even if we can't control this virus with medication, vaccination or new social norms, that there is a route for this virus to become less virulent in human population care of evolution. Well, at least I'm choosing to take some comfort from that. So I hope you enjoyed that. But for now, I think it's time for me to say goodbye. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll speak to you on the next episode where we explore intelligent life throughout the galaxy with Professor Christopher Consolis. Until then, thanks very much and goodbye.